This morning, our Scripture reading comes from that well-known passage of Scripture in Luke chapter 19. And as you already know, we are focusing on the events of Palm Sunday of God's Word. And Luke writes these words. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And as he approached Bethpage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Tell him, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, his owners asked them, Why are you untying the colt? And they replied, The Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. And as he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. And when he came near to the place where the road goes down, the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Amen. And we trust that God will bless to us this reading from His Holy Word. These early days in April stand out in our history as special days. And so many things happened historically in these early days. And in 1861, the first Pony Express reaches Sacramento in California. It didn't last too long because Telegraph took over, but it was a monumental day when the first Pony Express rider arrived. In 1861, after 34 hours of bombardment, Fort Sumter surrendered, and it began, of course, as you know, the Civil War. In 1970, Apollo 13 announces, Houston, we've got a problem, as an oxygen tank explodes en route to the moon. 1979, the longest doubles ping-pong match ends after 101 hours. In the choir, I don't think they were playing consistently for 101 hours. I imagine in my mind they took breaks every couple of hours or however it was decided, but it was quite a game. 1986, and many of us will remember this, the 50th Masters Golf Championship was won by Jack Nicholas, and we look back on that as a great sporting occasion. And in 2023, <laughs> First Presbyterian received a certificate of occupancy. Did you possibly think for a moment I was not going to mention that this morning in some way or other? But back in AD 33, Palm Sunday took place for the first time. And the question we're looking at this morning is this. Why is Palm Sunday significant? And the wider question 
what is involved in what we think of as Holy Week. Likewise, why is it important? Now, this morning, as most of you are aware, Palm Sunday is considered by many biblical authors, and rightly so, as the climax of the ministry of Jesus. And in fact, if you explore Scripture and read it closely, what you will discover is this, that before the foundation of the world, in eternity past, before time and matter existed, God in His providential sovereign love set His love and affection upon His people and knew a time would come when the salvation of humanity would come to a climax and a culmination in Jerusalem in the year A.D. 33. And all of history was flowing up to this point. And on Friday this week, as we move from Monday, Thursday into Good Friday, we will remember the death of Christ from which all eternity flowed. That is how significant Palm Sunday truly is. It begins Holy Week. Now, if you would journey with me in your mind, please understand this, that Jerusalem was a vibrant, busy city that first week because it was the week of the Passover. And first century Jewish historian Josephus tells us that the population of Jerusalem swelled to around just over two million people. First century Roman historian Tacitus tells us that normally you would have a population of around 600,000 in Jerusalem. So, a lot of people were gathering in Jerusalem for the Passover. And of course, there was a sense of uh, festivity and excitement when families from across what is called the Mediterranean Basin, some from North Africa and Egypt heading west and north, others in ancient Turkey coming south and east. And they were celebrating all that God had achieved by bringing to their forefathers emancipation from ancient Egypt, from bondage and slavery. And as you read Luke's gospel, you begin to get a sense that something extraordinary is about to happen. And you know that for this reason. And let me challenge you on this. If you have never read through Luke's gospel, let me encourage you to do so between now and next Sunday. It will take just over a couple of chapters every day, about two and a half chapters, and you'll get there, almost three chapters. Excuse me. And as you begin to explore and read slowly and carefully, the gospel of Luke, what you discover is this, that the closer you get to Palm Sunday, there is an air of expectancy. There's a sense of not just something coming, but an air of suspense and apprehension and anticipation and excitement, because from chapter 9 on, Luke's gospel changes and it changes significantly, and it changes with these words, 
as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And then in chapter 13, then Jesus went through the towns and villages teaching as he made his way to Jerusalem. And you see it again in chapter 17, on his way to Jerusalem. And then again in chapter 18, Jesus took up took the twelve aside and told them, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be handed over to the Gentiles. They will mock Him, insult Him, spit on Him, flog Him, and kill Him. And on the third day, He will rise again. And all of this is running through the mind of Luke's readers as he moves us closer and closer to Jerusalem. And so, with that sense of expectation, that sense of momentum, we begin to come to the latter part of chapter 19. And the other thing that is worth remembering is this, that as Luke is writing his gospel, he goes to some pains to emphasize again and again, this is not something that is happening to Jesus, but in fact, he is at the very center of it. He is the one making his way to Jerusalem. He is the one who's focused and purposeful and intentional. He is the one who knows what is coming, and yet as He carries out the purpose and mission of God to bring redemption to humanity, He's right at the very center of it. So, please never give in to the temptation that somehow suggests that death of Christ was some kind of accident, or it was primarily as a result of the jealousy of the Pharisees or the greed of Pilate. In fact, it's the very opposite. God was right there in the midst of it all, bringing to pass His purpose and His will. And so, with all of that in mind, we come to chapter 19. And notice how it begins. After Jesus has said this, He went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And as He approached Bethpage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, He sent two of His disciples ahead of them. And you know the rest of the story. It was laid out for us in our call to worship this morning and in our reading. And please note this, that as you read through the passage, the Lord needs it, and as he got onto the donkey and began to walk through the area south, in fact, it's southeast of uh, Jerusalem today, and you can still walk the same path. A number of you have walked it with me. And when you're there, you begin to understand the magnitude of what was about to happen. Now, I'm sure I've told you this before, so if it's repetitious, please forgive me. Over the last 18 months, couple of years, I've been reading biographies on George Washington and Ulysses S. Grant, and my most recent one has been on Hitler. I have to confess it is seriously distasteful, but for someone who enjoys history, it's fascinating to see how of that, how all of that went so badly wrong as you examine the nature of humanity. But in each of these fairly significant volumes, what you discover is that about 10% 
of each of the biographies focuses on the death of the person, but not in the Gospels. In Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, fully one-third of each gospel is given over to the death of Christ, of what happened on Palm Sunday, on what happened on the week leading up to Monday, Thursday, and then Good Friday, and then Easter Sunday. And so, the biblical authors are saying, pay attention, slow down. This is significant. Don't miss it. Engage with all that's happening here. That's what's happening. And one of our difficulties on Palm Sunday morning is this, is that when we see the children come in waving their palm branches, and the cute factor is off the charts. And it's off the charts because there are children and grandchildren, and we know what everyone else across the continental United States knows, that children born and raised in Greenville are the best-looking, the most intelligent, the most accomplished children anywhere. And so, we love to see them parading, rightly so, on Palm Sunday. But the difficulty is this, that sometimes our focus can shift to the children, or the palm branches, or the donkey, or the Mount of Olives, rather than who is sitting on the donkey. And on that first Palm Sunday morning, notice what happened when he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, verse 37, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. And notice what they cried out, "'Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest.'" Now, let me pause for just a second there. When Ruth and Michael and I first arrived in the United States back in 2007, we arrived in August. I began work here in September, and then, of course, it was football season, at least for college football. And we would be invited multiple times to go, and we attended several times. And what was new to us and surprising to us was this that people gathered, not just in a handful here or a handful there, tens of thousands, up to 80,000 people would go to a game, and they would arrive four hours before anything took place. Can you imagine if next Sunday morning at 6 a.m. you were gathering in the parking lot outside the church before anything happened? In actual fact, when I say before anything happened is not accurate, because lots and lots of things happened in those four hours before the game began. People would bring out little tents and canopies, and they would then bring out all sorts of food from barbecue all the way through to multi-layered gato cake. And then they would talk for hours about how the team has done the previous four weeks, how they anticipate the game going today. They would wear their colors, and they would celebrate, and they would meet with family and friends. And it was one spectacular celebration. And then when the game itself started, people would shout and complain or rejoice and sing and all sort of throwing each other in the air and all sorts of things were going on. Now, take that picture 
and compare it to what happens here. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And notice verse 39, which we didn't read earlier. And Luke records some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Why? Here was uninhibited, unadulterated, worship and honor and glory given to Christ, and the Pharisees were uncomfortable with it. Now, on a Sunday morning, when you are involved in a congregational hymn, and your heart and mind and soul begins to soar heavenwards, and you're giving thanks to God for all that He means to you, all He has done for you, and your love and adoration and praise is overwhelming. And for some of you, singing enthusiastically. For others, you may raise your hands a little to hear. And what happens to the people around you? They will take one look at you and then shuffle away because it's becoming uncomfortable. That's what was going on with the Pharisees. There was uninhibited worship taking place, and they did not know what to do with it. And rather than give thanks, and rather than look on in admiration, they said, stop that. Sometimes I think the Pharisees were Presbyterians, quite frankly, but that's just a whole other thing. Here was God's frozen chosen, stop that. Rebuke them. So, let me ask you, when was the last time in a moment of prayer with your Bible before you, you were reading God's Word and you were lost in wonder, love, and praise? Uninhibited worship. That's what was going on here. That's why it begins Holy Week. That's why it's significant, because God was unfolding His eternal purposes and decrees, and here was the disciples getting a little glimpse of what was going on. On Sunday morning, when I select hymns and work with Susan and the others involved in music and worship, we never select hymns on the basis of what is popular at the moment. We hope it will be. We don't select it on the basis of hymns we were brought up with, although some of them may have been around a long time. We don't select them because we've heard them on the radio. We select them because we want you as a congregation, led by the choir, to be involved in uninhibited worship. We never want you to come and simply be a spectator. We want you to come and be a participator and allow the heart and mind and soul to soar heavenwards. But here's the problem with that. The problem is that sometimes I find in my own life that my heart and mind and soul is not worthy to do that, for I have sinned against Him. I have betrayed Him. I've let Him down. I have wounded Him, and I need to come and ask forgiveness 
I need to come and seek His cleansing power and His renewed touch and His refreshing grace. All of that is wrapped up here. And as the passage continues, worship, the Pharisees tried to say, no, stop it. But in fact, we should go the other way. We should delight in worship. We should be thrilled by it. We should allow hearts and minds and souls to soar heavenwards. Marva Dawn, a very fine Christian writer talking about worship, writes this, I yearn for worship that will demand of me the strongest discipline, the most creative imagination, the most passionate emotion, the highest intellect, and the most rigorous will, in short, genuine adoration of God. That's what was going on in Palm Sunday morning. Now, notice what happens next. And again, we didn't touch on this, but let me begin to highlight it, and I'll wrap things up this morning. The passage immediately following Palm Sunday reads, Then he entered the temple area. Jesus, coming from the Mount of Olives, enters Jerusalem, comes to the temple area, and began driving out those who were selling It is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Now, what does Jesus mean here when he says that? What he means is this, for the tens of thousands of pilgrims gathering from the Africa coast or from Asia Minor and ancient Turkey, or as we said earlier, across the Mediterranean basin, rather than bring an animal with them for sacrifice, they would simply buy one in the temple precincts. Now, please in your mind get that picture firmly established there. The temple precincts, often called the court of the Gentiles, was 172,000 square feet. And to help put that in perspective, imagine 35 football fields put together. That will give you a sense of how large the temple precincts were. And over on one side, if you came from North Africa, you could go and buy a goat or a dove or a pigeon or a lamb and you would then take it to the priests and ask them to sacrifice it on behalf of your family. And in so doing, you would give thanks to God for His goodness and kindness and love and grace. You would recognize all He has done for your forefathers in bringing them out of ancient Israel and giving you a life in the promised land. But the difficulty was this, that when you went to purchase that animal, and you perhaps from North African coast gave a Roman coin, they would look at that coin, they would see the mark of Caesar, and they would say, we do not accept coins that have idolatry on them. You have to go to the other side of the precinct. You will see an exchange table. Exchange your money there for Jewish money. Bring it back, and we'll be glad to sell you whatever animal you needed. And as you can imagine, the exchange rates were exorbitant. 
just out of all proportion. And so you ended up in a situation there of an enormous religious marketplace. Can you imagine the stench and the tens of thousands of animals? Can you imagine pilgrims getting hot under the collar when they were being cheated in purchasing animals, when they went to pay their temple tax, which was half a shekel, and their money was rejected, and they were sent to the exchange to change it once again? It was, for all intents and purposes, daylight robbery. And Jesus coming into the city enters the temple, looks at it, and thinks, good night. This is to be a place of prayer. This is to be a place of worship. This is to be a sacred space, a place that is consecrated, sacrosanct, given for worship and prayer, engagement with God Himself. And you have turned it into a den of robbers, and no wonder he became angry and began to turn over the tables of the money changers and drive them out of the temple. Now, you may be sitting there this morning and saying, Richard, I am immensely grateful for the historical backdrop. I'm immensely grateful for laying out for us that gradual, increasing sense of apprehension, but also excitement and anticipation in Luke's gospel. But nothing you've told me this morning applies to me. I did not pass by money changers when I came in to worship this morning. I really didn't. So, Richard, how does this apply to me in this holy week? Richard, give me one thing to do between now and next Sunday morning, Easter Sunday, when I can come back and worship. Give me one thing that will grow my faith this week. That's all I'm asking. Well, let me suggest this. When the Apostle Paul is writing to the church at Corinth, this is what he says to them. He says to them, you are now the temple of the Holy Spirit. And what did he mean by that? This is what he meant. He meant that when an individual comes to faith in Christ, and that faith becomes very real, it becomes the center of who you are, it becomes your identity rather than an activity. When prayer becomes a priority, when worship becomes significant, when you can't wait to open up God's Word and spend time with Him, not only does He cleanse you and change you on the inside, not only does He empower you and enable you to live out your faith, He gives to you His own Holy Spirit to live within you. And that's why Paul says, you are now the temple of the Holy Spirit. He lives in you. And here's my challenge for you this week. Here's the one thing that I need you to do. Father, cleanse this temple this week create within me a willingness, a passionate desire for holiness and purity and cleanliness, not a grudging, well, I suppose, if I must do my duty, but the very 
opposite. Help me to be thrilled and delighted to seek after holiness, to be able to worship you in uninhibited praise and adoration. Help me this week as I go through Holy Week, move towards Monday, Thursday, and Good Friday, and Easter Sunday, to spend time with you, cleansing me, renewing me, changing me, take from me patterns of behavior that are distasteful to you, break thought patterns in my mind that betray you and are sullied with sin. Forgive me and cleanse me and allow me this week to be able to walk close to you so that I might say in that uninhibited fashion, praise to God in the highest. I belong to Him. I am loved by Him. Make me holy. That's the significance of Holy Week. That's the challenge that lies before all of us this week, and I would have to confess to you this morning, that's also my prayer. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for this incredible passage of Scripture. Thank You for its power and all that it calls us to do and be. Help us, please, this week to be able to celebrate with you all that took place that first Holy Week and help us to know the enabling grace and power of your name at work in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.